clapping is not good when you've sliced off a little bit of your pinky. Yeah, that does not sound exciting at all. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week we are officially a part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. In honor of Aaron Rodgers, we're going to do this podcast entirely on one leg and maybe under the influence of some kind of painkiller. And this week we are joined by Jared Brown, fellow Scouting Academy alum and scout for the Bleacher Report 1000. Jared, how are you doing today? Doing so well, man. Thanks for having me back. Excited to get to review first week of football and, and get into some more. I know, man. Week one is here. It is now gone. We've got some things that we think that we're going to talk about. It's going to be, I think, a fantastic show. But first, some quick housekeeping. Of course, you heard at the top of the show that we are indeed a part of the Fox Media Podcast Network. There's no need to resubscribe. This is all good things. If you've seen the last couple of episodes on your feed, then you're all set. Unless you're subscribed on SoundCloud, and then A, you're probably a millennial, and B, you'll probably want to update your subscriptions. So you can check the links. We've been tweeting them out. But if you've seen the last couple of shows, you should, you should see no drop-off in terms of being able to find the show. Eventually, you will hear ads on the show. Don't know exactly when, but they're coming. They, there won't be a ton. Uh, there probably will be, uh, I would say, two to three ad drops per show, depending on how long it is. But something in the beginning, something at the end, something in the middle, as standard for podcasts. This also means that we're on Spotify, because now we have the full weight of Vox Media behind us. And so they got us on Spotify pretty quickly. And lastly, all I would ask is share with a friend. The season's upon us. It is time to break down some 49ers football, so let's get right to it. Uh, Jared, it's, uh, now you've got one R in your names, and we're really, really good at mispronouncing names here on the Better Rivals podcast. So is it Jared, Gerard? Help me out here. It's Jared, yeah. I don't know why my parents uh, felt the need. Well, I know they wanted to be sort of unique uh, and spell it differently in honor of my uncle Rod, but it is Jared. So we're not even really honoring him anymore. See, now, now I'm just going to start calling you Gerard. Like yeah. J Rod, and that I mean, would, exactly. I get J Rod fairly often. I think because it both honors him and simultaneously uh, feels as unique and weird as they may have intended. Well, I feel it's it's only fitting that as now a guest on the Better Rivals podcast, we have issues with pronouncing your name because that just means we are right on brand. Uh, so let's talk about the game because it was a Week One game against the Vikings. It's a game the Niners lost twenty four to sixteen, but it's a game that felt competitive for nearly the entire game, despite the fact that the Forty ers had four turnovers and and before we even get to the things that we think my first question jared is what the hell did we expect i mean this was one of the i would say the top two to three teams in the nfl what did we expect when the line was basically a touchdown and the niners you know were right about there and they made this game competitive i think that we our predictions last week put us somewhere sort of both in the vicinity of this i think i said they'd lose by about four but neither of us expected you know an offensive blowout Neither of us expected the 49ers offense to suddenly put up, you know, 40 points. I think all things considered against arguably a top probably two, three team in the NFC, this game was impressive that they had some ugly play at points. They were working with backups along the offensive line, some serious shuffling. And for the most part, like you said, it was still fairly competitive right down to the wire. I don't know, maybe we said, you know, or we sort of, I'm speaking the proverbial we as the fan base, we put the, the pressure a little too high or the expectations a little high, but week one, to me, you know, if, if there are quote-unquote moral victories or a good loss, that's it right there. 
Well, I think when we get to the things that we think, the, the first thing that I noticed was that the 49ers had a lot of success targeting middle-of-the-field defenders. The, the offensive plays that really began to kind of get the offense on track, because the first couple drives were not great. I mean, they were started out backed up uh, on their own end zone, but they had a good slant to Pierre Garçon right to get them out of trouble. But it wasn't until the second and third drive that Kyle Shanahan started using some sift motions in order to get the, the, in order to get the offense going. What the hell is a sift? Well, it's a player moving across the flow of the line's blocks. You'll see this a lot on split zone runs uh, for Kittle or for use check to block that backside edge defender. But that sift motion will help open up a lot of things because it looks really, really similar to the defenders depending on what it is that you want to do. So you'll see a sift when you're going to have a split zone, inside zone run. You'll have uh, that sift motion when uh, Jimmy GQ is going to run that bootleg. You'll have the sift motion when they run play action shots and that sift person's going to stay in and block. These were the three plays that they ran that looked identical where it was like to Kittle one side, to Kittle the other side, and then to Trent Taylor on, on the same sift motion. And all of these things basically targeted over-aggressive linebackers in the middle of the field to basically use the Vikings' aggressiveness against them and get some open shots, which they did, got them on schedule, got them driving down the field, and then all of a sudden you, you, you find yourself in the red zone. So you can see Kyle Shanahan's game plan really beginning to attack Kendricks, really beginning to attack some of those middle-of-the-field defenders because you don't really want to attack Xavier Rhodes. You don't really want to attack Harrison Smith and Sandejo. And, I mean, Jimmy GQ tried, and he, you saw what happened when he tried. What I thought was really impressive was just uh, Shanahan's ability to set the, the sort of defensive flow up, and he like you mentioned, sort of use that aggressiveness against them, expecting that, you know, with, with quite frankly, some poor running backs in the backfield, or at least not the threat that we thought Jarek McKinnon was, Minnesota certainly looked a little overzealous to, to get downhill and start thumping a little bit. And the sift motion worked phenomenally to stretch them horizontally. I remember covering training camp last year, and he did a phenomenal job running plays like this, even in training camp against the defense. And I kept thinking, geez, how are these guys so wide open all the time? And you just see so much motion working front side, so much movement and flow. I, I, as a defensive player, you're put in such a rough position. I have no idea. You've been training for you know at least a decade, and your keys tell you to get downhill and scrape hard over that, and then you turn around and it's a tight end, you know, sort of sifting out to the backside. It's it puts defenders in such a bind especially at the NFL level where the guys know that if they're half a step late or wrong, it's you know the difference between a 25-yard gain. Now, the other thing that Shanahan did was he started attacking slot defenders with a running back. There was a play in the red zone that the 49ers missed on because, well, Garrigiyam, the star right tackle, uh, is going to do Garrigiyam things. And, and it was, I mean, it was a play that was set up beautifully. The, the Niners come out in 11 personnel. You've got Dante Pettis in the slot. You've got Trent Taylor out wide. Uh, and you've got Raheem Mostert aligned just beside Jimmy GQ in the backfield. Well, the, the Vikings are in a cover two, maybe a cover four, although I think it was a cover two. And you've got Pettis in the slot, and he immediately runs a post and runs right at Sandejo and Smith. Both of those players converge immediately on that post because they're thinking exactly what everyone else is thinking. Oh, you think you're going to run a post against a cover two, which is a traditional cover two beater. Well, in this condensed red zone, we can break on this. It's going to be easy money. And then all of a sudden, you see Raheem Mostert come out of the backfield and run a vertical route. And he ends up getting matched up on a nickelback. And he's, he's already got leverage on the nickelback. And he blows right by the guy. And if Jimmy GQ has one extra beat, one extra beat, that's a touchdown. 
that the play was schemed beautifully and he completely duped the Vikings defense. But because we couldn't get protection on on Jimmy GQ, all of a sudden you've got a sack instead of a touchdown. And those those are the little plays that I think that that differentiate a team that wins this game versus the team that loses it. I would agree. Like you mentioned, I think it's the sum of those very small misses that add up to what felt like a potential opportunity to win against a good team and sort of make a statement. Obviously, the plays uh, like the the deep pass to Kittle, you know, sort of in the grand scheme, that, that sticks out as a massive play. But really, it's these small ones where it's just half a second late. The ball's not quite there whether by fault of uh, Jimmy Garoppolo or the offensive line, those are the plays that add up. Most importantly, it became a negative play. In addition to sort of a, a wasted opportunity to get some positive yardage, you know, the the return on that investment is actually a, a loss. And that's, I think, what hurts the most. I'm not quite sure what the uh, scouting department, quite frankly, still sees in Gary Gilliam as a uh, you know swing tackle, if you will, when his reps have never looked... Uh, particularly well but alas you work with what you got week one and the team the team does glom on to some players and they seem to like whatever uh mr guillam is providing but i guess the hope is that he doesn't play because your hope is that you don't have to put your right tackle in it guard often which is something we'll get to here in a little bit once we get to the rundown and we start talking about the, the midweek news but you know i think the the game plan from shanahan was sound and you could tell because the Niners were in it, despite the fact that they had turnovers. But the Vikings defense was just so damn good. I mean, even though you you have the Niners being able to succeed against the middle of the field defenders, the Vikings' speed and recognition, especially at safety, were able to beat Jimmy Garoppolo's fast release. There are three instances where the safeties single-handedly disrupted what should have been and what typically is a reception for the 49ers. You've got Harrison Smith hitting Garcon in the first quarter on a dig route. This is something that they typically hit. You've got to dig against cover one. You're right in front of the safety, uh, and all of a sudden, you get hit. He puts his, you know, he hits the, and breaks up the pass. No big deal. Sandejo is then on a second, on another play, gets a hit on Garcon on an in-breaking route, a play that may have actually been a fumble. I watched it over and over and over again. Garcon catches it, takes two steps, gets hit by Sandejo, and, and the ball jumps out. I think it was a fumble, but I'm glad it wasn't called that way. I think it uh, was too. I think benefit for the 49ers there that it wasn't called. I agree. Yeah, and then you've got Garcon, of course, on the red zone corner out where another play where Garoppolo holds the ball just a little bit long, and and because he holds it long, he ends up having to throw the ball in a place where a defender can get a hit on Garcon when he's up in the air with his hands on the ball. So it's just those little things, and and these are the things that that differentiate a Vikings team that is legit super good. I mean, they are probably one of the one or two best teams in the NFC right now. And the NFC, I think, is the best division in football or the best conference in football. And so you're talking about a team that could easily be in the Super Bowl with a defense that's been together for four years. All the main pieces have been there for four years against a quarterback who, yes, has had a full offseason in the system, but is still in only his eighth game. And, and these are the differences. This is the difference between a team that is growing into itself versus the team that is already established in itself. I thought it was good 
route recognition from the safeties of the Vikings, which is really difficult to do as much as natural athletic ability and talent can make up or, or maximize a player's skill set. The ability to identify routes in motion as they come at you as a defender is high level stuff. It's not high school football where a lot of kids are playing both ways. These guys are safeties primarily uh, to understand offensive concepts and be able to drive on footballs with them anticipation and awareness just highlights how good of a duo Harrison Smith and Sendejo are and their ability to really maximize what Minnesota can do because of their awareness, because of their route recognition and their ability to break on balls as they're coming forward. Uh, break on balls, better rivals drinking game. Uh, that requires a drink, uh, which by the nice. way, uh, I'm going to have a new version of the drinking game for week two. I, I did something a little different this year. I waited until week two so that I could see what happened week one to get some of those rules in. Uh, I, I think we're going to have some good ones as a result of, of week one. So if, uh, if McGlinchey goes back into guard ever again, just be prepared to pound a drink or two. Uh, yeah, but, that, that feels like that's when you crack the hard liquor and take a couple shots and, oh yeah. We're talking like and the you know, afternoon early. Absolutely, Super Bowl forty seven drunk is what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, what was the thing that you? What was the first thing that jumped out for you when you were watching this game? I think the first thing that jumped out to me was how impressive Akello Witherspoon's work this off season has been, and how apparent it was immediately. If you whoa, remember, whoa, 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 whoa! This is the guy that got beat for a long touchdown. Tell me more. Yeah, so he, the, I went and watched that play quite a few times, and I think up until the catch point, that was one of the best reps I've seen from him in quite a while. He went to the summit, the little you know cornerback summit, if you will, with Richard Sherman, was invited by Richard Sherman to practice with Aqib Tlaib, uh, and I'm trying to remember some of the other big, I mean, these are all big-name guys that were there. I want to say Darius Slay was yeah, there. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Darius Slay was there. He was, we're going to face here in a little bit. So impressive, impressive players there with him, and and more importantly, some impressive veterans to help him kind of build some of the vet savvy and some of the techniques that it's going to take to improve. Uh, in terms of PFF grade, his coverage grade was 77.2 in the 43 coverage snaps that he was in. So that actually puts him on the high end of above average. The touchdown to Diggs was really good coverage, and he remained in phase, which is to say that he wasn't on top of the receiver because that's actually a disadvantageous position to be so on top of him that you're kind of at, at their mercy as they make breaks. But he was in phase, meaning, you know, essentially I like to describe it as could reach his hand out and feel the hip of the receiver. Uh, even if you're deep, some people consider that kind of maybe a, dis- a disadvantage, but that trail position is actually kind of nice. He kind of, quite frankly, right at the catch point, pulled a Dante Johnson, Johnson, which is to say he just didn't turn around and find the ball. And at some point, you've got to have the spatial awareness. And usually it goes with playing the hands and eyes of the receiver. You know, We're all humans here. As you're going to make a touchdown on Sundays, eyes light up a little bit. Hands go to catch. Receivers are taught, you know, don't show your hands till you absolutely have to. But at some point, Akella Witherspoon has to play through the hands of the receiver and actually affect the catch point. And that's where he didn't. And that's where I think he's still lacking. One thing that I didn't well, love is I that after the catch is made... I think the throw, just, I think the throw made, just beat him. The oh, throw the throw was him. phenomenal. Yeah, that the, was one the of Cousins' was great. best It was throws. on the money. I think it you're was. exactly right. I think he was in phase. I think he, he was in a position to make a play on the ball. And unfortunately, the throw beat him. And, and in those situations, I, I did hear a little bit, like people were saying, oh, he should have looked back for the ball. Even I think the announcer, Charles Davis, was like, you know, oh, I, I want him to look back for the ball. Sometimes when you're in that position, looking back for the ball means that you lose the whole thing altogether. You're running at full speed in a straight line forward. When you turn, oftentimes that just opens up more space for the receiver to catch the ball, and you, try, and you lose everything. So you're, you're coached and you're taught 
to play exactly as you say through the hands through the, and just keep raking to get right in there and get in that pocket and, and it was just a little bit too far out of grasp for him especially given his long arms that's how good of a throw it was I mean it was just a, a Kirk Cousins gets paid too uh, and, and I think this was an instance where he just he dropped the dime and it was a damn good throw Absolutely was. And what was really impressive was that Stefan Diggs sort of used a, a little bit of lean there and gave Kirk Cousins a, a nice spot to put the ball really kind of on his uh, sort yep. of working over the inside shoulder into the outside hand, which was definitely a, a top tier throw from Kirk Cousins that uh, makes, you know, sort of the, the if we're just looking at the stats, makes Akella Witherspoon's day a little less. But the grade, uh, the PFF grade at least, recognizes that overall he had a pretty good day. What I thought was really impressive was that that was the second highest coverage score of either team. Safeties or corners, slot, whatever you want to call them. Xavier Rhodes was the only player that did better. And it was a top 20 cornerback score all throughout the league week one. And you're talking about some high-level competitors out at corner. There's good corners in the league right now. For him, 32 teams, he's top 20. You're talking about you know top top quarter of the league in terms of, of, of coverage play. So I think an impressive start for him. What's most exciting, if I could say it's exciting, is that that's really one of the toughest tests he's going to have all year. They've got the Rams, the Lions, and the Chiefs kind of over the next few weeks sprinkled out. We'll go Lions, Chiefs, and then Rams. And that's about the extent of the real dangerous receivers that I think he's going to face. Uh, and so I think for week one to show up against two nuanced route runners like that is an impressive start for his second season. All right. If there's a place where he's got to get a little better, where is it? He's got to become a better run defender. And, you know, the stories from training camp last year of him getting bodied up, they, they're still there. There were concerns about how physical he could be in run support coming out of Colorado. I don't know that he's you know, so bad that it's a worry because his grade of uh, 50.3 was, was pretty much right in the realm of most other corners. I mean, they're just not really paid to be run defenders primarily. Uh, however, Sherman's was significantly better. And so that sort of duality of that, the dichotomy of having one cornerback that's a very impressive, aggressive run defender and the other one that's not, offenses are going to begin to isolate him as a run defender and they'll move people to identify the coverage and then go right at him in, in outside runs. So I think he's got to get better there. And that just becomes a part of you know playing with a heavy outside hand and, and understanding where the help is. He's not paid to make 100 tackles, but if you can... F- you know, stack the outside shoulder of receivers and funnel inside. Then you let guys like Reuben Foster and Fred Warner come clean all this up. Yeah, I'm not. I, I would love a, a hard hitting corner, but that's that's not what we're going to pay him money for. Uh, I think uh, Gibbs said it best when he's like, "We don't block corners, we block safeties." Uh, and you don't block corners because you know that really those are the guys that if you're reliant on your corner to have to beef you're up your run defense, shape. you're probably yeah. in bad shape already. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I think the second thing that, that I think is just that Jimmy Garoppolo finally came back down to earth. It had to happen. It was a game that it was eventually going to hit us hard across the face. But I'm really not that alarmed. And fans, you shouldn't be either. I think that there were some definite things that he's going to look back to the tape and he's going to improve. Uh, the red zone throws, of course, were not good. His late throw, we talked about it to, to Garcon in the corner of the end zone. It was a beat late. And because it was late, he allowed the defense to make a play on it. The other was the high throw to George Kittle in the red zone. Another beautifully set up play where everything tells you that that the tight end is going to keep going to the outside and flow to the outside. And then he, he fakes to the outside like he's going to pick and then comes right back up to the, to the middle of the field. And he's open. He's wide open. Uh, and, and I think Kittle said it best. You know, I'm 6'5". I'm, I'm I, I can't get up there with a 45-inch vertical. And, and so it was just it was a bad throw in the red zone. And then, of course, you've got the interceptions. 
The interceptions, you know, I would say one of them was just really unlucky. That throw to Pettis, um, it was definitely an interceptable throw. Not, not, not gonna gloss over it, but nine times out of ten, that ball hits the ground. But Xavier Rhodes was able to kind of hit the ball, and it kind of just fell down exactly into his cradle. And he was like, "Oh, look, there's a football there!" Uh, and he was able to cradle it in, and, and that that was a bad one. And then, of course, the one to seal the end of the game that was also equally as terrible. But the uh, I think those were the two bad interceptions. Of course, the the interception of Bourne was on Bourne. That is a, a bad route. So I, I think overall. This is what happens when you're going up against a defense that's as good as the Vikings. But then you think, what, what were the other things that, that Jimmy Garoppolo does that you're like, yes, Jimmy Garoppolo is still there. His throw to Dante Pettis was freaking bonkers. I mean, Phenomenal. out of this yeah. fucking world amazing. Just rotating out of that and, and just throwing it what looks like a prayer. And then the catch, I mean, I, I noticed the catch immediately, but then it was like, oh my God, that throw. It was amazing. It was so good. Um, his placement on middle of the field throws, he's always able to throw the ball away from danger, which is really difficult to do. That's really, really high level stuff. And, and even though I think Kirk Cousins won this battle, I think overall Jimmy Garoppolo was still the quarterback that we saw, a quarterback that was not helped by his receivers, but also made a couple of uh, of poor throws. But this is all in the process of growing and learning. And I think if this game happens again in week 16, I think Jimmy Garoppolo is a better quarterback than he is in week one. And, and that's a testament to both Shanahan and Garoppolo and the fact that this team still has to grow some. I would agree. And I would also say that in addition to Garoppolo sort of being who we thought he is, so was Shanahan. I mean, week one, big, heavy matchup against a defense. And Shanahan had his dudes open left and right. They were so, running wide open, weren't they? Like, it's, you're, you never have to worry about this team really getting outcoached. You don't. And, and, I mean, you know, you, you see guys get a step or two here and there. I mean, they had players that were wide open by NFL standards. I mean, five, six yards of separation between players is ridiculous. And not once or twice. This happened 10, 11 times throughout the game. So Co- ability, college open. Yeah, co- exactly. College open to where it's like, whoa, what did we just look at? So I, I don't foresee that changing. And I think Jimmy G is probably going to get a little bit of the, hey, bud, Thank you for trusting your arm, but you know that next play we'll probably be able to scheme somebody well, did, wide open. Did you watch the game? I think it was in the game live when they cut to Shanahan talking to Jimmy Garoppolo. And I think he said something to the effect of on the corner route to Garcon that he threw a little late. Uh, he said, just throw the fucking ball. Yeah, just just <laughs> let it rip. Just yeah. let it rip. Trust that he's going to get a guy in a spot to be open. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, as much as Jimmy trusts his arm and that's rad. Trust that your head coach is a badass as well and is phenomenal at getting your dudes in spots where they're usually one of the only ones there. All right, hit me with your last thing that you think for the, the Vikings game. The last thing that I think is just that the shuffling along the offensive line that happened both in the game and that's kind of happened throughout uh, training camp in the offseason is what led directly to the poor play. Nobody graded out well overall, and that includes Staley. Uh, I think that it's sort of a lack of a cohesiveness among the offensive line. I mean, there's so much nuance and communication that's required. And they've been trying to figure out who the starter is with Garnett and Person. And they've been rotating tackles. And I just think that that you need at some point to make your mind up for better or worse and let it roll and let guys stay where they are and make it work. And obviously the injuries threw a wrench right into that. Yeah. I mean, the injuries were a big part of it. Like that's, you don't expect to have your right tackle. that's never taken a snap at guard 
all of a sudden go into guard. Absolutely. And I would say that the lack of preparedness for that makes me a little nervous that not preparedness as much as like if there's one spot that the team seems to have not been great at evaluating yet in at least in draft terms, it's interior offensive line. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about them not having a a solid plan for playing their third string guard when, you know, you've got person and Garnett like it's how often is it that both right guards go down in one game? I'm not too concerned about it. And they've already promoted someone from the the practice squad, I think. But uh, I do think that the the offensive line play definitely had Garoppolo. um, I wouldn't call it gun shy, but he was feeling the pressure. And and I think that's one that's why he was a little reluctant to throw the the ball. I think he was waiting until guys were a little bit more open, which you know you can't really do in the NFL. You have to almost throw to a spot, or as Steve Young would say, throw blind and, and kind of trust that they're there. And Shanahan has an has an offense where they are going to be at the spot that they're going to be you know practiced at. And and I think that this is a really good lesson and a really good learn for Garoppolo as a whole. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of you know people learning from failure. I'm not a really big fan, but I do think that people learn from failure. And I do think that this was Garoppolo's worst game as a pro. And and how he responds to this is, I think, going to be a big test. He seemed to me to be hitching a little bit extra, almost routinely, every play. Like, there was just an extra pat, an extra step. Yep. And and like you mentioned, is sort of late to the trigger. Because we've seen, uh, I, I kind of think back to some of those games, the throws that he made against Jacksonville last year where there was zero fear and is like, see it and let it rip. And I don't know if maybe the expectations of a full season and, and what people expect from him and the team this year may have helped, uh, forced him to hold on to it for a moment. Definitely the pressure that was, that was coming from the front. Again, we mentioned it last week. The Vikings are, are a good team too. And you kind of said it earlier with Kirk Cousins. These guys are play, are paid to be professional football players as well. And they've invested the the draft capital and money into their defense for this exact purpose so that good starting quarterbacks get knocked off their spot and hitch a little longer than they need to and then that that potential corner route for a touchdown is actually a, an incomplete pass you know i've got no this is just complete theory i'm speculating at this point but and this is all conjecture right so dismiss it fast forward whatever but you know, Matt Ryan, one of the, you know, he's a great quarterback. I think he's not, you know, super, super amazing, but I would say he's a good quarterback, a quarterback you can win a Super Bowl with. And and he even had a first year struggle with Shanahan's offense. And it wasn't until the second year that they were together that that offense really began to take off. I wonder if it was Jimmy Garoppolo's lack of knowledge in those five games that allowed him to let it rip because he was like, look, I don't know what the hell's happening, but I know that that guy's going to run a slant. That guy's going to run a flat. And I can kind of figure it out from there. And, and it was all kind of on his shoulders and it was more improv. And, and I feel like he does perform well outside of structure. That touchdown pass to Pettis, of course, being a prime example of him succeeding out of structure. And, and now that he actually knows all of the structure and he knows all of the why, he is thinking a bit much and he is overthinking things. And, and so I think that might be contributing to him taking that extra hitch and taking a little bit longer to, th- to throw the football and we're going to see hopefully that kind of fall away over the next three, four, five, six weeks to, to the point where he feels more comfortable working both within structure and outside of structure. That's just my guess. You know, I've got nothing but one week of, of tape and, and, and a theory to work off of, but that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yep, paralysis by analysis. And I'm sure that Shanahan, well, he did in games, say just throw the fucking ball, man. Trust yourself and let it rip. 
Yeah, one of the things the Vikings did too, which I thought was interesting to really kind of stop both the the run game and the pass game was they were able to stunt on the line and they were able to exchange gaps and move gaps. Something that Salah did a little bit as well, but they their stunts and their ability to get into gaps that they weren't originally in really screwed up the the 49ers blocking assignments as well. And when you look at poor poor offensive line play, not only did we have inferior talent on the right side of the line, but holy hell, Mike Zimmer was relentless, man. Once we started swapping players out there, he was like, start sending players to the right side, send them off in. And, and I hope that Salah learns a thing or two because he found a weakness in the line and he sent resources at it over and over and over again. Sometimes there's this tendency to kind of overthink stuff, right? Like to be too much of a tactician or in that case, it's like, hey, that guy's not very good and they know it because otherwise he'd be a starter. Let's go right at him and make him play better than he might normally. Uh, and obviously it didn't happen and, and the Vikings were the beneficiary of that. I agree. Hopefully Salah recognizes that, that sometimes there's no need to think too much. Just attack exactly like, uh, you know, a 12 year old might. Exactly. So spotlight player, player that we think is and had a fantastic game. Jared, give me your spotlight player this week. Really quickly, I think I have to spotlight Richard Sherman. He only allowed one reception for 18 yards. He had plenty of coverage snaps. His uh, coverage grade was in the 70s, which is a, a good grade. Particularly what I really liked is that, you know, the jitters of coming back from an injury, new team, being sort of this veteran leader on this team, I thought he held up well. I thought that he was vocal and intense. I thought that he made impressive plays, that he remained in phase, that this sort of athleticism drop-off that you know was natural both with age and injury seemed to be uh, not terrible, and he was able to compete against some uh, good receivers for the Vikings. So I have to spotlight him as a player that uh, surprised me in a positive way, and, and hopefully if he keeps this up, then the contract and sort of the risk of signing him, in my opinion, is 100% worth it. Totally agree. Uh, I think there was a, a tweet earlier by Matt Barrows. He said ex-Seahawks on the 49ers roster. He listed Richard Sherman, Malcolm Smith, Brock Coyle, Cassius Marsh, Gary Gilliam. Sorry, Gary Gilliam. Uh, Terrence Garvin, Tyvis Powell on the practice squad. Uh, I tweeted out, one of these things is not like the other. Do you know which of those players is different than the rest? Yeah, uh, my initial reaction is to say that Cassius Marsh is a white guy. <laughs> uh, why you got to get all racial, man? Why you got to? Why got to make it about race? I his tattoos, that, his tattoos. You can't even tell that he's white. Like when of, you watch him on fair, tape, it just looks fair, like a brown guy. Fair. I would say that one of those dudes is is at least week one earning his money. Uh, yes, uh, my way of saying it was one of them doesn't suck, uh, and that's Richard Sherman. He he played he played really well, and it, and it's exciting that. I'm trying to think about the last time that the 49ers had two solid cornerbacks and more importantly, one that was still seemingly ascending and what a better person. To, I don't know that there's a better person for a Keller Witherspoon to be learning from than Richard Sherman, both because of the, the success Sherman's had in this scheme, the success he's had in the league, what he provides as a, a savvy veteran. I, I mean, it's on all fronts. This is this is the kind of guy, I can't believe I'm saying this about Richard Sherman, but this, I mean, this is the guy you want on your team. That's actually a really good question. When was the last time that we had two solid cornerbacks, one of which was an established vet, the other of which was ascending? Uh, I mean, my mind immediately goes to 2012 when we had Carlos Rogers and Terrell Brown. But even then, they were like not the bestest. Uh, Terrell Brown was, you know, not necessarily ascending. You, maybe you had Chris Culliver um, as the ascending player. But 
That's actually a really good question. Uh, if you're listening right now and you can think of a year uh, and the players, go ahead and tweet at us. Uh, me at Better Rivals. Uh, Jared, where can they tweet at you? You can tweet at me at Jared Brown underscore J-E-R-O-D. It's, it's a rite of passage, the underscore uh, here on the Better Rivals podcast. So uh, tweet at us who you think that, that defensive backfield was. That, that's a really good question, I think. But uh, my spotlight player of the week is Fred Warner. He played out of his freaking mind this week. He had nine tackles, was all over the field, graded out at 88.7 PFF grading, easily the best of a defensive starter. He kept the 49ers in the game on two separate occasions. Of course, you've got the forced fumble on a long Dalvin Cook run. And then I think one of the less heralded plays was a pass breakup to Thielen late in the game. His break on the ball was amazing. That's exactly why you draft a player like Fred Warner. He is the modern NFL linebacker, and I cannot wait for week three when him and Reuben Foster are on the field and they never have to come off because they are both run players and pass defenders, and you've got just an amazing core of the defense right there in the middle of the field that's in the long tradition long tradition since Patrick Willis of fantastic linebackers here in San Francisco I don't know who I mean it'll be curious to see between Fred Warner and Reuben Foster both those guys could match up in coverage I mean I don't know how offenses are going to choose to attack the middle of the field uh, or choose to use running backs in the passing game but it's going to be a struggle with with those two on the field All right, so that wraps up our breakdown of the Vikings game. It was a game overall that was closer than it seemed on paper. uh, But, you know, the Niners had a good game plan going in. Jimmy Garoppolo, unfortunately, came down to earth. Akella Witherspoon showed that he is a cornerback on the rise. And the offensive line, of course, was a problem due to injuries. But Fred Warner, Richard Sherman playing up to their potential. And overall, it was, I mean, it was a fun game to watch. It sucked at the end. Hearts got ripped out. But I had fun watching the game. I did too, and again, like you mentioned in the beginning, the expectation, this is about as close as it could get. You know, some of those those turnovers that may not have happened otherwise or, or may be a little bit to the ball bounce in the way of the better team. If those don't happen, this game could actually swing in the 49ers' favor. So, you know, you try not to play the, the hypothetical game and what if, but first week with all of that they dealt with, I think it's a, a more or less about as positive of a loss as you could get. All right, now let's get to the rundown. These are going to be other news and notes as we transition from the week one game up to the week two game. These are going to be interesting things from the game or news bits that I think are worth mentioning. Number one, those defensive line stunts, they were the order of the day because blitzing Kirk Cousins in week one was a little bit counterproductive. Solid blitz Cousins on 10 out of 44 snaps, 22%. Uh, and Cousins' adjusted completion percentage was 71.4% not off of his non-pressured mark of 72%. And, and basically, there were especially a couple plays early where Cousins made us pay. But you saw some really interesting stunts in the middle of the line, some A-gap stunts between Mitchell and Armstead that were both effective against the run. You saw something similar with Day and Mitchell. So it's good to see that Sala is expanding his stunt game because that's something I think that can be really helpful for the 49ers. Absolutely. The other, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. I think it's a really interesting way to, to see Armstead used. Yeah, because he, I mean, he is, you know, explosive, but not in the traditional kind of, you know, Aaron Donald kind of way. But especially if you're stunting, he's athletic enough, he's athletic enough to, to wreak some havoc on the interior of the line. I was surprised to see him aligned on the interior a bit more than, than Solomon Thomas, but and we'll, maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. 
Um, the other thing is that the, the Niners unleashed a new kind of run, uh, not a new kind of run, but a run that I hadn't seen them run before. It's I'll call it the bend back run. It's a design cutback run from the I formation to really attack aggressive linebackers and mess up read keys. The Niners ran it at least three times and, and they basically started running to one direction. And then as soon as you clear the quarterback, they bent it back on a design cutback. Interesting little run. It, it didn't, it worked, I think in one or two cases, but something to, to note. And uh, Jimmy Ward finally found his niche. Guess where that niche is, Jared? Uh, not surprisingly, it is not at slot cornerback. That's exactly right, because he gave up a couple receptions there. He graded out really, really well as a special teams vice. The vice is the opposite of gunner. Fun fact. Uh, so when you're, when you're kind of trying to get to the punt re- returner, you're a gunner. When you're trying to prevent that guy from getting to your punt returner, you're a vice, because there's usually two of you. Uh, Jimmy Ward, elite vice. Who would have thought? Yeah, uh, that, that uh, what a well, well uh, use of a first round draft pick. I thought the exact same thing. I was like, that's exactly what you draft a first round, uh, a first round defensive back for. You know, if, how hey, ironic man. the the term vice and it feels like he's more or less put clamps on the uh, organization, at least in the the hopes that he's going to pan out. Yeah, he'll, it's all right. He's got he's got one more year in a Niners uniform, and I think everyone knows it. And it kind of hurts my heart a little bit, but oh well, it is what it is. Uh, 14 missed tackles against the Vikings. Brock Coyle missed four tackles. Adrian Colbert missed three. Jaquaski Tart missed two. That's got to get cleaned up for the Niners to do well. Uh, and then we've got some, some pass rush committee information. Uh, what do you got for us, Jared? Yeah, I thought that... You know, the, this Leo position is a bit of a hot button issue, and the, the 49ers, their scouting department seems to have uh, perhaps let that position go to the wayside, or at least the expectation uh, of many was that they would draft a Leo or, or find a Leo in free agency, and they've more or less elected to go with the similar cast of characters. And uh, at the same time, they brought in some outside coaching help and have said this may be sort of a by committee issue. What I thought was impressive was that there, the idea that we're going to funnel these sacks into DeForest Buckner and his quarterback hits and hurries from last year won't be hits and hurries anymore. They'll be him finishing plays was more or less fairly effective. Two plays I want to highlight within the first, there you go, heard that, within the first six minutes of the game was a couple uh, edge pressures that really funnel right up into uh, the the middle of the field and at at the line of scrimmage. That's where I think the the pass rush is going to be the be- bread and butter this year. They don't have sort of this speed edge rusher that's going to come off the edge in a hurry. They're going to have to work in tandem with some of those stunts you mentioned earlier to really get guys isolated one on one and funneled into somebody like Buckner when he can defeat somebody one on one. What I will say, at least hearkening back really quickly to the missed tackles, just thinking about the names you mentioned: Coyle, Colbert, and Tart. Those are all second and third level defenders. Not a good recipe for winning a game when those are the ones missing tackles. Were you surprised at how good Marsh was in run defense? Because he was still not great as a pass rusher. He just he just wasn't. He consistently gets pushed beyond the spot of the quarterback, and that's just not a good place to be. But he actually held his own as a run defender in this game, and I thought that was kind of surprising. I agree. I th- I don't know. I I was looking at his pass rush snaps. I don't know if that's by coaching. Like if if that's the hey run so wide of of that quarterback's drop that he's stepping up. But if that's he, a, if that's coaching, get a new coach. That angle exact that angle has to change. I don't know. I mean, if he's, if he's not sure of quite what his body can do, he just doesn't have that bend to be able to really turn a tight corner. So he's running so far upfield that he he's 
he's inherently creating the pocket. And against a team like the Vikings, who don't have an elite offensive line, I'm thinking about the Seahawks, you're doing their job for them. At some point, he's going to have to adjust his angle for sure. But as a run defender, I, I agree that it was better than expected. Again, I just, I, I'm curious that, how they foresee themselves sort of mixing and matching these players. You're sort of, at least, uh, the whole defensive line and pass rush as as a unit becomes another, you're going to have, have to have another de facto defensive coordinator there to, to try and guess what's happening on offense so that you get the right personnel and kind of an odd uh, approach to the season, but perhaps it'll work. All right, and the last thing is going to be some roster shuffling. You've got the... A guard promoted from the practice squad, uh, Najee Torin, Najee Toran, uh, Najee Torin, I'm not sure, uh, but he was promoted from the practice squad. He's an undrafted free agent from UCLA. He had about an average PFF grade in college at UCLA last year. Uh, he is going to be the guy who's starting at guard if person's injury keeps him out, which is a foot sprain, keeps him out for a long time, or Garnett's dislocated toe uh, keeps him out for a couple weeks. I would say odds are that person comes back from his injury before Garnett does. Uh, and I'm not sure where Magnuson comes in. He just started doing limited drills, uh, individual drills. And so I'm not sure if he's going to be back this week. But I would say that having Najee Toran in there is better than having McGlinchey in there at guard. We'll see what happens against the Detroit Lions. Uh, and then we signed a linebacker as well. Uh, we've signed, oh, what's his name? I don't even know his name. I was tweeting about him all earlier today. Uh, former Seahawks linebacker, Terrence Garvin. He's basically going to be a, uh, a Sam kind of inside linebacker hybrid. He can do both. He played 190 or so snaps for Seattle last year, which was his most snaps and best year. And he played about a 50-50 split between an on-the-line kind of Sam linebacker and an inside-the-box middle linebacker. So uh, I would say he's probably going to be no better or worse than Brock Coyle. So it's six of one, one half dozen of the other. So let's get to the Detroit Lions. This is week two. The NFL season moves on. It's going to be the return of Ricky Jean Francois and Eli Harold, a revenge game for those two gentlemen. And the first question I've got for you, Jared, is after watching the Lions week one, are they really that bad? I think they are. I, I think, you know, I'm always a little my, hesitant. My favorite with... thing, sorry, I have to I have to decide real quick. My favorite thing was that I, I wrote that that first question in the agenda, and I was like, are they that bad? And your one-line reply was, Yes. <laughs> I, I really think they are. I don't know that there's much. I mean, holy smokes, if you watch the same game I did, I, I, I bet we could pull just about anybody in here to, to oh, give you man. that one. It was so funny. I was laughing when I read that. <laughs> I just don't I just don't know if I buy into Belichick disciples. I think Belichick is so good that I mean he can make a whole lot of other people look pretty damn prepared. I don't know that Matt Pat Matt Patricia is is you know, this sort of defensive savant that he's, uh, you know, sort of been heralded as just because he's a bright guy. I think that the Lions at least need to, to figure out personnel-wise what they really want to do in terms of running the ball because at some point they do need to find some balance there. But early on, I'm not very impressed, definitely not impressed with their linebacking unit. Uh, and, and I think that this is a game that the 49ers have to be thankful for that this is the team coming coming to them after facing the Vikings well I think even though you look at the number of points the number of points scored was 48 that obviously there were like two or there were I think six interceptions is what it was at, at the end of the day and a couple of them were returned for touchdowns so not all those points were, were hanged on the, the defense but 
I do think this is the Detroit Lions team that comes in, uh, well, wounded. They're limping. And I think that the first thing I'm going to be looking for is whether or not Jimmy GQ bounces back. He's going up against another secondary that has a couple of high-level players, one of which is Quandre Diggs, Hook'em Horns. Uh, but Quandre Diggs plays uh, that strong safety that moves into the slot and nickel packages. But none of the other lines coverage defenders really played exceptionally well in week one. You've got Nevin Lawson, who's perpetually fighting for his job, and he was fighting for his job this offseason. He gave up four receptions in week one on six targets for 51 yards and a touchdown. Didn't do very, very well. And the, the defense for the Lions isn't going to have a lot of teeth up front because Ziggy Ansah might not play because he's perpetually injured. And, of course, he hurt his shoulder in week one. So all that to say that you've got maybe one really, really good coverage defender. You don't have a pass rush. You've got a, a team that is now, I think the Niners are going to be looking for that, that win. And, and they're going to be able to target a couple of players, more players than they could against the Vikings. And I think you could see, especially at home, a Jimmy Garoppolo bounce back game. I agree. Like you mentioned, I think the Vikings had more, rather less defenders for the 49ers to target, right? There, and this week, there is more of an opportunity to identify routine weak spots in this Lions defense and to exploit them. Like we mentioned with Shanahan earlier, he is a master at getting guys open. I'm sure he's looking at this film, circling a few specific players and going, we're going to exploit him, we're going to exploit him, we'll exploit him. So I would expect uh, players like George Kittle, uh, Kyle Juszczyk to have a great game this week with a ton of targets against this team. Yeah, I'd expect the Niners to go a, a bit more base here because especially if you can keep digs away up top, you're looking at Lawson. You're looking at Darius Slay didn't have a great game the first game, but he was okay. And then you've got Wilson in the backfield as well. Um, and, and, you know, Tavon Wilson's not, a, at least so far this year, he's not great. He's kind of been on the decline. 2016, 2017, I would say 2014 was his best year, but he stayed in that kind of above average area. And now I think his his performance might be slipping. And I think you've got, especially if they don't have Ansa. This is going to be primed for the Niners to be able to take advantage. Uh, and, and I think Jimmy Garoppolo is going to take this to heart and, and start bouncing back. Not that he needs to. He's a professional athlete. I think he's just going to be better and, and be back to his regular self. Um, but I think the other thing I'll be looking for is whether or not Robert Sala is going to learn from Mike Zimmer and target the Lions and target their weak spot on the offensive line because they've got some weak spots. They absolutely do. I think early on, some of these names look look impressive, looking at the right guard, TJ Lang, who you know is a, a savvy veteran, played in Green Bay for a while, and Taylor Decker, who's their uh, good left tackle that trains with LaCharles Bentley out at Offensive Line Performance in Arizona. Both those players are good, and they had very good weeks against the Jets, but Lang was injured, and he might not be out there. And in addition to that, they've got young players at other spots that are easy targets for a player like Buckner. Yeah, you've got on the interior, you've got Glasgow, uh, or Glasgow, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, depending on where you're from. I'll call him Glasgow because then you can say Ragnow and Glasgow, um, the Owl Twins. They did not start strong in week one. Both their PFF ratings are eh, Debbie-esque. Uh, we'll call them the Jordan Debbie line. But if, if I'm DeForest Buckner, I'm licking my chops, man. I'm like, okay, I, I had a great game against an inferior offensive line. And now I get Ragnow and Glasgow, and I'm going to be able to, to do some stuff against them as well. So I'm looking for another really good game from DeForest Buckner against the interior of that offensive line. And if we can get pressure on the, the quarterback, one Mr. Matthew Stafford, 
I think the I don't know that we're going to be able to force him into as many interceptions. But if I'm Fred Warner, I'm licking my chops, man, because it didn't seem like it didn't seem like Stafford was seeing linebackers. He was linebacker blind in week one. And I think that Fred Warner may be the beneficiary. He was linebacker blind. And what I think is sort of the kind of, quite frankly, where Jimmy G may be at sometimes Stafford really trusts his arm. Even with pressure, he's willing to let it rip. So if Buckner isn't quite there yet, right, this sort of idea that the pass rush is going to funnel the quarterback into Buckner, even if he's not quite there yet, with his length and with Stafford's willingness to sort of pull back and separate the ball to then accelerate for a throw, Buckner, I wouldn't be surprised to see plenty of uh, hand swatting happening on the interior and potentially at least one strip sack this week. All right, what are you going to be looking for against the Lions? First and foremost, I'm looking for what kind of run game they're going to have. They just today uh, release a running back off their injured reserve. They still have yet to really commit to what exactly they want their running backfield to look like, whether that's going to be, uh, and they haven't for years. I mean, this is a problem that they've had for probably three or four years with Theo Reddick and Amir Abdullah. Now they've got LeGarrette Blunt. They have to decide at some point, are we going to be a true running back by committee where we bring in different skill sets and use them appropriately and mix and match or are we going to commit to one person because they drafted carry on johnson out of auburn and it looked for a moment like he was going to be the dude and he would be able to do a little bit of everything strong runner impressive receiver three down back and give him an opportunity to really keep one guy on the field at all times and yet they haven't really used him i think yet in preseason or in their first game to the best of his ability. So at some point, they need to find some kind of running game to balance out what they do as an offense. The receivers are strong. They've got Marvin Jones, Golden Tate, Kenny Galladay. Those three guys are a good group, all with a little bit of size, speed, nuance, and and again, Matthew Stafford's willing to deliver the ball. But at some point, if you don't have a legit running game or a legit rushing attack that doesn't necessarily need to hit 150 yards a week but you do need to have the threat if they won't commit to that then they're going to continually hold this offense back and it does favors for the 49ers because their base personnel is going to be just fine uh against run they can rotate out and bring in a a fifth nickel back and i think still feel fairly confident because the rushing attack just isn't that good I think if the, the Lions don't make on Johnson their feature back already, I think they're stupid. They're just flat-out stupid. It's I think a waste Carrion, of time. It is. Not only that, but he's he's the best back on their roster. Like I get that you want LeGarrette Blunt, and I get that you want to recreate Patriots in the Motor City, but but on Johnson is the best halfback on your roster. Both what he can do in the, in the run game and the pass game, I think, makes him a, a clear number one. And the fact that they haven't started him, I think it just makes it easier for the Niners to defend because having to defend a player like him would be difficult. With full disclosure, if you listen to us during the, the draft, the the draft, the lead up to the draft, Carrion Johnson was one of the backs we targeted for the Niners to draft as that kind of dual threat, good in zone scheme, but also could contribute in the passing game. So I, I've been a fan of his game for a bit, and, and I think that that he's, I mean, he's a good back. He graded out well in Week One, and, and I think if the the Lions don't play him, they're they're a little lame. I worry that because the game script is likely going to be the Niners ahead a little early, especially if the Lions make bonehead mistakes, that they're going to start throwing the ball around. And, and this is maybe not my worry, but one thing I will be looking for, just like you, is that if they do start throwing the ball and they do become one-dimensional, 
I really do want to see how this team holds up because I think you're absolutely right. Jones, Tate, and, and Galladay, they are, that's a good trio of wide receivers. And Stafford is not a great quarterback, but he's, you know, above the Dalton line, above the Alex Smith line, um, or he's right around there. And so I think it'll be a really good test for this defensive secondary if they can stop a team like the Lions from producing a lot through the air. I, I would be curious to see what the plan is for the Lions if they come out after seeing how the 49ers fared in in run defense against the Vikings. So the, the 49ers defense actually played fairly well against the run against the Vikings. I wonder if the Detroit Lions just scrap it this week and go, you know what, we haven't figured out a rushing attack yet. We're facing a defense that only gave up, I think it was close to like 90 rushing yards last week, to a fairly good uh, Minnesota Vikings running back in Dalvin Cook. Yeah, I wonder Dalvin if the, Cook was good, man. I wonder if the Lions just say, you know what, let's scrap it this week, let's not even worry about it, let's see if we can tack the slot defenders with one of our three receivers, and maybe that's where we get them this week. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious if they did that. Uh, I mean, I think Jim Bob Cooter is not only going to have an amazing name that I've and it actually pains me that I haven't said his name until this point in the podcast because Jim Bob Cooter is a name you should say repeatedly over and often because it's it's the best name in football, Jim Bob Cooter. But you you hear, of course, reports of the Jets being able to diagnose and call out the the Detroit Lions plays last week based on formation and based on hand signals. And, and you know, you, you're, you've got to think that the team is going to change their hand signals at this point. But if their offense is indeed that predictable... I wonder if the Niners are going to be able to do something similar. And, and it doesn't matter whether or not they scrap their game plan, man. If they're that predictable on, on offense, then the Niners defense could feast. They could. It sort of becomes a, if you want to be that one dimensional, even if you think it's your benefit and we, we know that, and that gives, that gives sort of the, the advantage to the 49ers really quickly. How ironic that Jim Bob Cooter is an offensive coordinator whose primary goal is stop penetration and yet still score. That's a that's an odd odd mix there with the name. I wonder if you I see what you did there. If you, yeah, I see what yeah, you did there. Sexuality wordplay there is uh is elite if if uh if nothing else. With him, do you think you is it Jimmy if you were to sort of speak to a young cooter, would you say <laughs> <laughs> would you call it Jimmy Bobby or Jim Bobby? Or Bob or <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Bob. Yeah, never mind. Not, I don't care. I'm still thinking about speaking to a young <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but that's a good question. Uh, Jimmy, Bo- Jimmy Bob or, or Jim Bobby? Uh, Jimmy Bobby? Jimmy Bobby Cooter, I think, is where I would go. I think I would go there, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what's your prediction? Final Sorry. prediction. <laughs> so the I, line is Niners minus six. The Niners are favored. They're favored by almost a touchdown at home. Holy hell. When was the last time that happened? Favored by almost a full score. What do you think? The uh, the Niners cover? The Niners win? What's the deal here? I think the Niners win, and I think they cover. I think that this is the week that Jimmy GQ comes out. I don't know that he's going to need to be perfect. I don't know that he's going to need to be all flash. I think this is a game where you get back on track with some consistency. Shanahan tells him, trust himself, trust the offense. And I say that the 49ers win 24-14. All right, I think the Niners do win this game, but I don't think they cover. Uh, I think they end up winning by four points. Uh, I do think it's going to be, you know, not necessarily an offensive explosion, but I think overall the Niners probably win. I would say if they're six-point favorites, 
I said they probably put up 26, 28 points. Eh, we'll go with 28. Let's call it uh, an even number. And then uh, I think the Lions probably get up to like 23, 24. So I think the Niners still win, but they win by a field goal. And the game, I would say, doesn't necessarily feel close, even though the final score will be. So they win, but don't cover uh, and end up winning uh, 28. Let's call it 24. Quick over under here for you. Lions, 85 total rushing yards over or under. Ooh, that's a good one. I would say over. Uh, getting Keeping a team under 85 rushing yards is difficult. I see where you're going because game script might mean that they just abandon the run by the time they get to the fourth quarter. Uh, but but I think they end up getting uh, they probably end up in like the you know mid to high ninety or mid to high eighties or low nineties under hundred yards but but over eighty five I would say I would say they they would take that too as a plus for them if they can as a team oh, absolutely. rush for closer to a hundred yards I mean that shows at least a little bit of a little bit more consistency than uh, what it seems like has been four or five years of them not having a legitimate rushing attack All right, congruent over under. What do you think is Matt Stafford's over-under on the number of interceptions that he throws over or under two? Over or under two. I'm going to say, oof, that's a good one. I'm going to say over, only because ooh, I think— three picks. I All think right, if you, putting I think the if stake you make, in the ground. I like if, it. If the 49ers can take two, then I think that that swings the game heavily in their favor and would push the Lions to throw even more— for potentially more opportunities. All right. Well, Jared, thanks for joining us, man. Where can they follow you on the Twitters? Follow me on Twitter at Jared Brown underscore. That's J-E-R-O-D, brown like the color, and then underscore. All right. You can always follow me at Better Rivals. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. And as always, go Niners. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. Fultron! I keep telling you, we're not Fultron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations, Bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Fullcast. It's not Voltron.